0: Welcome to the South MIMS U Soccer Studies podcast. In this episode, we're going to shine a bright light on that most magical and mystical of experiences, football under floodlights. And I'm joined, as ever, by Martin, our reader in soccer studies, who, as you may remember if you've listened to us before, is in Australia, where he heads up our sister faculty in that distant outpost of the beautiful game, namely Sydney, New South Wales. Uh, Martin,
1: are you there? Uh, yes, Jerome, I am. And as ever, I dragged myself from my bed at this unearthly hour just to be with you. Could you give us a brief overview of the soccer scene down in Oz? Well, of course, the A-League is
0: the domestic soccer pinnacle here. Yeah, well, I've sat through a few games of the A-League and it makes me wonder what the B-League must be like. Well, what I'll say is this,
1: that the striking thing here is, I don't know, what I describe as the parochial prominence of the various winter sports. I mean... New South Wales, and you can add Queensland to it, it's all NRL, that's rugby league to you and me. While um, while we'll go, go a bit further south to Melbourne and the rest of Victoria, and then it's AFL, what we would call Aussie rules. I think, in a sense, that dilutes the sense of national buy-in. Personally, I miss the, the saturation that football, I mean, our, our football, soccer, has actually achieved, particularly in, in England, in the UK, in Europe. So you think it's better football is dominant here and in europe yeah uh, you you don't realize how much you value that saturation until you don't have it so i, I suppose it's, it's the withdrawal symptoms it's the it's the soccer cold turkey isn't it on my part i suppose
0: now um floodlights and football i mean for me there's that special atmosphere the spotlight well and truly on the players uh, floodlights make football into true theater do you agree with that
1: in in my view absolutely you're right there it does of course
0: and and the floodlit ground itself is like an an oasis of light and often a spectacle in a industrial landscape or a urban landscape which might even be quite deprived or increasingly with modern stadia it's also a shining light in a sort of bland retail park landscape would you agree with that (laughs) well you're getting all
1: poetic on me now aren't you (laughs) of course Um, yeah I I think for most of us, there is that something, literally something tangible in the air with with, with an evening game. I I want to suggest that floodlights and the the existence of floodlights are really the architects of European competitions. So Champions League, European Cup, Europa League, UEFA Cup, the much missed for me at least, the European Cup Winners' Cup and, and the rather bizarre, I suppose, Europa League grandparent the Inter-Cities Fairs Cup. I'll set my stall out. We wouldn't have that Champions League music that Manchester City fans boo and drown out if it wasn't for, you won't believe this, but a game of polo in Fulham and the proud Northamptonshire town of Wellingborough.
0: Really, Martin? I think you've been in the uh, the sun a little too long. You're saying that without floodlights, we wouldn't have the modern European game.
1: Let me take you back to July 1878, side of the Thames, the Hurlingham Club in Fulham. Of course, it's it's still there. It's actually where the rules of polo were first drawn up. But anyway, there's a floodlit polo match between Ranley Polo Club and Hurlingham Club. I say... That broke the mould. Floodlight thought leaders, if you like, trailblazers, we might say, if you will if pardon the, 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 the almost pun. We were in 1878. Let's go forward a year. 1879, Wellingborough Town, or the, uh, the Doughboys, as they're affectionately known, are entertaining local, or I suppose we could say local-ish, rivals Bedford Town. And Jerome, you know, guess what? It's played under floodlights. When I say floodlights, lights and generators at either end of the pitch. And I say that the doughboys are, to European competition, frankly, what Alexander Fleming was to penicillium. They laid the foundations, I would almost say discovered floodlights, but of course, others had to perfect them. So you're, you're going to have to give us a little bit more
0: than uh, than that, because, all right, fine, first game played under lights how does that make your theory
1: actually work let's let's fast forward wet monday night 13th of december 1954 think of it rationing's finally come to an end we're in we're in the black country and the factories have been pumping out smoke all day it's monday evening we're wet and we're cold we're huddled against the elements and jerome we're off to molyneux
0: you're, you're, an, you're an actual poet, Martin.
1: <laughs> ah, you're too kind, thank you. Well, we're going to see the mighty wolves, the wolves of Stan Cullis. Billy writes the captain, but it's no ordinary night. It's been just over a year since England have lost 6-3 to Hungary at Wembley, and in fact, only six months since they were dropped for a second time by the Hungarians, this time 7-1 in Budapest.
0: Yes, indeed. A deep scar on the English game, which uh, still irritates quite a few people right now. <laughs> indeed.
1: Well, anyway, you and I are standing there on the uh, the terraces of Molyneux. Our visitors tonight, Honved, the great Hungarian team, thought by many at the time to be the best club team in the world. And the question on your lips and my lips, just how good are the Wolves? How good is English club football. A perennial
0: question that never seems to find an answer.
1: We, we find we've found our usual spot on the Molyneux Terraces. The ground fills up around us and then there's the lights, the lights, oh, the lights. The lights that the doughboys first had the foresight to use. Now the raindrops sparkle in them, just like the football in front of us. And not just us, there's 55,000 of us. And, Jerome, we're all transported. We're in a capsule of wonder. The stage, I mean, you said the theatre, absolutely right. The stage is lit up before us. The noise sounds as if it's bouncing backwards and forwards, hemmed in by the stream of those lights. We know there's something special happening in front of us, and there certainly is. The scoreline, of course, finally, 3-2 to Wolves. And you know what? Tomorrow the press will be saying, Wolves, champions of the world. Well, I'm all a tingle
0: and I'd be even more of a tingle if I were a Wolves fan. But it, you've, you've painted a wonderful picture.
1: There's, there's a Frenchman watching this game, Jerome. He's not joining in the euphoria. He thinks, yes, Wolves, these are a, these are a good side. They're, they're a very good side. But he thinks to himself, I've, I've seen a bit of European football. Real Madrid and AC Milan are better. And then he thinks this needs to be settled. He's a journalist with uh, L'Equipe He says to his readers the following day, what we need is a European club championship. And one year later, the European Cup, the birth of the first European competition as we know it.
0: Aren't you making a bit of a leap there? You're saying that this man was watching the game. It excited him so much in terms of the fact that he thought that wolves were good, but not that good. So he thought, right, okay, because it's under floodlights, because it's so exciting, we will now do something to prove who's best by putting the best against the best across Europe. And all that because of the floodlights. Isn't that a bit of a leap,
1: Martin? I'm saying that what the floodlights created, and I accept you might think it's a bit of a leap, but what they created was spectacle it was the spectacle, the event that captured his imagination. Had it not been for that floodlit game, I don't think his imagination would have been fired. Yes, as you say, great side pitched against great side, absolutely. Uh, But do you really think that our Monsieur Hannault would have seen the potential, would really have called for a competition straight away if that special evening, that Floodlit atmosphere that that you and I know so well. If that hadn't really got to him, and of course, if if there hadn't been lights, he was he wasn't thinking about Wednesday afternoon matches, was he? No, no. And
0: uh, Monsieur Anor is the is the guy you're talking about, obviously. He's the Lequipe journalist, right? Yes.
1: That's
0: yeah. Right. I would ask you not to forget that in the early years of the European Cup, afternoon games were actually the norm, weren't they? I mean. A lot of clubs didn't have light. So the idea that this was a, created by a spectacle of light then didn't turn into practice when they did start the um, the competition itself. Doesn't that undermine your theory? Well, c- certainly at the
1: outset, you're right. A lot of clubs didn't have lights, but it was the floodlit spectacle, I say, that drove it. And of course, very quickly, uh, we all got to understand European football as being football under floodlights. That's, I'd say, what has really gripped nation after nation. Yes, you're right. A lot of clubs didn't have lights. I mean, conversely, I could say, well, actually, look at Herbert Chapman's Arsenal in the 1930s. They already had lights installed at Highbury then, but of course, they didn't have sanction from the Football League to actually use them. Oh, really?
0: Right. Well, I didn't know that, actually. So they had the lights, but they must have used them for, what, practice
1: matches or for other uh, things? And they they use them, of course, for floodlit friendlies. So oh. of course they, they could have floodlit friendlies under lights, but not league games. Right. Well, we've got to be fair to
0: Arsenal, even though neither of us are Arsenal fans, that they sometimes pioneer... Uh, (laughs) new ways of doing football. But I still think, Martin, that you're overstating the floodlights thing. You know, yes, yes, lights facilitated competitions taking place. But it was the combination also, surely, of that development of regular air travel around Europe, which enabled clubs to charter planes uh, and go to play games, usually friendlies. In the post-war period, there were quite a lot of friendlies, including that um, Wolves match, surely, against Honved. That was a friendly, wasn't it? Yeah, tomorrow,
1: yes, it was. Yes.
0: Yeah. So the point is that they then did tours, and that accelerated the idea of a European competition just as much as floodlights. I mean, I think we've got to remember that clubs around Europe played each other even before World War I, and after world war ii there were many tours by clubs all over the place including as you say honved coming to england there's that famous is it dynamo moscow went to chelsea and there were a hundred thousand people got into Stamford bridge um yes. and that was like an iconic match and uh, i can't remember the result do you remember the result martin
1: my recollection is that a win for dynamo moscow
0: that's it yes i think so and of course england went and played around europe too and i'm um, emphasizing the point of travel here, and our beloved Spurs, for instance, they went around uh, Europe all the time. That's, that's, that's a fair
1: point. And I, I think you, you are right that the Dynamo Moscow tour was something of a touchstone. You, may, you mentioned the game at Chelsea. Of course, there was actually a game at White Hart Lane, OK, against Arsenal, not Spurs, because, of course, the, the two clubs were sharing the ground at that stage. And Moscow also played in Cardiff against Cardiff and in Scotland against Glasgow Rangers. And and you're right, record crowds, unprecedented interest. I mean, I, I agree entirely there.
0: I think, really, I think this um, fascination with lights is because you're a romantic at heart.
1: I, I know what you're going to say to me, Jerome. You're, you're going to say... It's all very well that floodlights were this catalyst for, for European competition. But you're going to say to me, what match really defined European football? You're going to say the 1960 uh, European Cup final, the, the famous Real Madrid-Eintracht Frankfurt game, the, the 7-3 to Real, of course, played at, at Hampden Park. And I know the point you're going to make. You're, you're going to say it was a 7:30 30 kickoff. It was mid-May Scotland with light evenings, it was daylight for most of the game. And I, I, that's a, a fair point. But I, I still say that the driver for the the recognition there could be regular European competition was the advent of floodlighting as we know it. Well, you
0: you're very good at reading my mind, and that is exactly what I was going to ask you. But surely there was something before that. I see in the notes that you gave us, you talked about something
1: called the Lipton Cup, which I've not ever heard of. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. They even made a dramatisation of it. I think uh, dear old Dennis Waterman played the, uh, the role of West Auckland Town's captain. Uh, West Auckland Town, the non-league team then and, of course, non-league team now, they were the British representatives in the Lipton Cup. Thomas Lipton, the, the team man, created this rather grand trophy and West Auckland Town were invited to compete for it. And the, 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 the competition was in Italy, and they went and won the thing. Apparently, the story goes that the organisers uh, were going to invite a team with the initials WA, Woolwich Arsenal they had in mind. The old lines got a bit crossed and West Auckland, and got the invite. Strangely enough, do you remember there was a player, a winger, who played for Queen's Park Rangers and had some games for England as well, famous for never wearing shin pads, Dave Thomas. Do you remember him? Yes, vaguely, yeah. His grandfather was in that West Auckland team. Oh, really? All the connections of history. So so, so there, there you had Thomas Lipton. I mean, I would say that was a catalyst for, for the World Cup rather than for European competition because it was billed as in effect, a world championship, almost a sort of national representative. All right, so now Um,
0: now you're making another leap. Right. Now you've gone back to 1909, the Lipton Cup. You've already said that floodlights were the sort of catalyst for the European competitions. And now suddenly this Lipton Cup was the catalyst for the World
1: Cup. Right. Now that you're going to have to explain. I'm not the first one to say that. In fact, it's often been referred to informally as the first World Cup. There's something to that. I suppose it got the idea of competitions across countries, international in the true sense of the word, and let's face it, a great bit of branding for 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 Thomas Lipton. So there you had literally the tea cup, and just think of it—we had to wait about another seventy years for the for the milk cup. So we had our tea for a long time, but no milk in it. Right,
0: ah, <laughs> oh, the milk cup, which probably still exists in terms of the
1: um, whatever it's called now, Carabao Cup. Oh, no, it's, 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 the it's, it's, cup. it's the League Cup. Because yeah, the, the yeah. first milk cup was, was actually our Spurs final in 1982 against Liverpool, where of course we were. We, we, we were leading till a few minutes from the end. They equalised, and then Liverpool ended up winning 3-1 in, in extra time. Oh, That's right. Not, not no. that I'm bitter, you understand. No, but.
0: no. I, I, t- I refuse to go back to painful memories. We understand now that floodlights have changed the game they changed the game quite radically they've given us the game that we love now because we all love a floodlit game we like watching them on tv but going to them there's something magical about that isn't there the glow of the stadium in the night sky and now especially with the new spurs stadium with the blue and the sort of changing lights around it i went to um the bayern munich stadium and the sort of way it it sort of pulses red and orange and yellow that's right is uh Amazing. So are floodlit games materially different to daytime games?
1: I think they are. One thing I would say, though, is I think the real magic was walking up to a ground for an evening game and actually seeing the illuminated floodlight pylons as they peered in your, in your eyesight, perhaps a, a quarter of a mile or half a mile from the ground, perhaps caught between between terraces of houses. Uh, with, with modern stadium, you, you mentioned the new Spurs ground, you mentioned the Allianz Arena in in Munich, fantastic. But to me, highlands are much missed and much much lamented. But there is a difference. I mean, let's face it, the grass is always greener, quite literally, isn't it, Mm -hmm. on floodlit games. Even the the shirts have a peculiar hue. And of course, the the other strange little trick played on the eyes was that, go back to the days of terracing and a floodlit game, if there were some gaps in the terraces, If there was a crowd that wasn't quite as tightly packed in as usual, very often you couldn't make that out. Actually, floodlights would very often make standing crowds, crowds on terraces, look bigger than they actually were. I mean, my
0: first um, experience of a floodlit game was actually Fulham, because I grew up near there. And uh, you say it made the grass look greener. This was quite a long time ago in the the 70s, and it made the mud look muddier. (laughs) There was something mag- magical. You're right. The crowd seemed to be bigger uh, and Craven Cottage didn't look as dilapidated uh, as it used to be, um, and the sound was louder. Uh, the light must do something to the sound in a in the oh, uh, in a floodlit absolutely. game. There seems to be more magic, there seems to be more grit almost from the players. You see you sort of see the reflection of their sweat even from the terraces sometimes. And that makes it more more of a physical game, I think. And I do believe that people chant more intently. There's more rivalry. And the result is more glorious or more ignominious, depending on, on what happens. And that is down to that spectacle, the idea of spectacle, which is linked to lights, which is something theatrical and is something that even goes back into uh, Greek theatre, where they did used to try and put flames around the uh, the arena to have nighttime almost sort of religious experiences but through drama and i think football with lights almost is akin to that or am i going too far martin
1: no 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 i, th- I think in a sense you're right we equate the floodlit spectacle with with theatre. It's vision-like, isn't it? And I think you're right. It's almost religious because when you think of religious visitations, for instance, they tend to be or imagine to be in a shaft of light or in a golden glow. And that's what you get with with floodlights, isn't it? If, as um, philosophers like you say, football really is life in microcosm, it, it always gets trotted away, well, you always trot that out. Um, I think if that is a legitimate thought, actually it becomes all the more understandable when you think about floodlit matches. Um, so, so I think there's there's something in that, that, that sense of spectacle, that sense of theatre, that sense of vision. I mean, we might all laugh at, at the cynical branding of Manchester United with the, the Old Trafford as the theatre of dreams, but actually there's an underlying truth to that, isn't there? I think even subconsciously for most people, lights mean, as you've said, performance. Or, or, or spectacle. And and I don't know, perhaps we all feel we're in something together. Perhaps that sense of belonging, the bonding is even tighter. You're in that enclosed area with the lights. At the end of a match, you're, you're let out into the dark, into the cold, into the night. That sense of belonging suddenly dissipates. So I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think also, inevitably, as football experiences go on, so... We equate memorable occasions with occasions we've experienced under the lights because, let's face it, cup replays. For instance, I know becoming a thing of the past, but but the magic of cup replays—they tended to be floodlit games. I mean, if I think back to to memorable games that I've been at that have been floodlit, I mean, one that comes to mind that might surprise you—you you mentioned Fulham. One I particularly remember was. The night before the cup final, 1974, Friday night, Leighton Orient, well, just Orient, as they were called at that particular time in their history, they had to win at home to Aston Villa to get promotion to the old first division from the old second division. And that that, that was season 73, 74. So it was the season of power cuts, uh, three-day weeks, industrial disputes, etc. But this was a floodlit game that I was at on the, the night before the Liverpool-Newcastle cup Final. And sadly, Orient only drew 1-1. And I think that year the teams that went up were Middlesbrough, Luton and Carlisle. And you remember the following season, Carlisle actually topped the old first division for a while before getting relegated. Anyway, at Brisbane Road, as it was then called before it became the matchroom stadium, etc., etc., that night there was 29,000-plus packed into Brisbane Road under lights. And that was, although, as a if not an Orient support, for at least a, someone with, with a bit of their heart belonging to Orient, that, that was a disappointing result, but a memorable experience. And I think back to being at the UEFA Cup finals, for instance, that we've been in at Spurs, the, the first one against Wolves, even the final one we lost. And then, of course, Tony Parks and his, 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 uh, his penalty save in the, uh, in the 84 final. So I think of all that... Under lights, and of course, even being at last year the the two incredible games, the the the, the Champions League quarterfinal at, at the Etihad against City, and then of course being at the Amsterdam Arena for the but what was really, I suppose, in truth, our, our true Champions League final yes. when we of course uh, turned it around against Ajax. All of course events under lights. So that that's the the self perpetuating attraction i suppose for me you know and that's something that's stretched across all my my fifth what's now 50 plus years of actually going to please don't admit
0: to your age i've been telling people you're 30 i think we've established that floodlights are special they did drive the game of football into the modern era and we do think that games under the lights are ones that are perhaps more memorable than those that are not well thank you very much martin and uh thank Thank you you. thank you dear listener for spending some time at the fringes of soccer and sports academia i hope we've added to your enjoyment of the beautiful game and after this podcast i hope you think that the game is as brainy as it is brawny which is my little my little line did you like that martin oh jerome you've got away with words i'm as always I'm, i'm impressed thank you very much Well, check out our other episodes uh, from the Soccer Studies Faculty. And there are also lots of other departments at South Mims University where we study some very, very strange subjects, which I hope you'll like. So thank you very much for listening and keep the faith.